Welcome to Book Rats, a podcast about books that matter by people who don't. Yeah, we were not we <laughs> banter before the start of an episode. Nope. We never do that. We never do that. Cold open. Cold open. Wait, no, wait, this is the opposite of a cold open. I've, to be honest, never gotten that term right. (laughs) Cold open is you start midway in like an episode and then there's like a later later title card. This is like theme song at the front. This is just the start. This is just the start, yeah. We put the start at the start. Put the start. Okay, if you want to, yeah, if you want to put the start at the start. So this is book rats. I'm Caroline Gorman. I'm Alex Bennett. I'm Stephen Garcia. Yeah, so today we're reading uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, The Ponces. Uh, I guess just a brief overview of who Blaise Pascal is. Mm-hmm. He was a French mathematician from the 17th century. He, You know Pascal's Triangle? No, I don't. He was, yeah. Okay, oh, yeah. Now let's you have explain. To explain it okay. Right. Right. <laughs> so you just. <laughs> You take you take the numbers and you combine them down the rows and then you know and it's the binomial expansion. There's all sorts of weird shit with the China. He also didn't really invent it either. Like China had found it out like several centuries before. He uh, uh, so he's mo- mostly known for his mathematical works. Pascal is the unit for pressure and the System International. Uh, what else? There's a programming language. He's known for his math shit. He's a STEM guy, but. Partway through life, he had a religious experience and converted to Jansenism. Branch Which is of, what? A kind of Catholicism. It's like a, a heterodox branch of Catholicism. And became very religious after that. And wrote a number of thoughts or pensées that were collected posthumously into this book. Uh, I just barely figured out how to pronounce that word like recently. I never figured out how to pronounce posthumously correct. Posthumous. It's a weird yeah. It's po- weird. posthumously. That's how, I was, <laughs> that's how I said it in my brain for the longest time. It's like, posthumously is like, how can it be funny if he's dead? You know, that <laughs> well, never made. Yeah, well, right. it's after. Yeah. So, I mean, I got the post part right. Just yeah. Yeah. thought it was funny that he was yeah. dead somehow. Or that funny. Death is funny. Yeah. Death is funny. Yeah. yeah, well, it's like how you have to wait a certain amount of time after someone's death for it to become funny. It's similar with discussing it. So you there was this. There's said. this other podcast that I listened to, and it talks about like how he developed like this ridiculously dark sense of humor. His grandmother had just gotten like his grandmother was you know robbed and killed and murdered by a meth head who was just looking to you know steal whatever and everything, you know to you know score something so she can go buy drugs. And she opens the door and didn't have anything, so the meth had literally, like, pretty viciously, you know, like, slits her from, like, ear to ear. Oh, and yeah. everything, yeah. and just, like, you know, like, horrible, right? And just, like, just really gruesome death. Then at the funeral, you know, they dressed her up really nice, and, you know, they did a really good job, you know, covering up that scar mm-hmm. and everything. They put a beautiful, you know, like, right. necklace on her and everything. And then his cousin's just right there, standing next to him, and it's like, you know, had she been wearing that necklace, we wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> was fucked up. Yeah. When I heard that, I was like, okay, that's pretty dark. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's fucked up. That's some post-humor right there. That's, that's, post-humor. Po- that's post-humor. Yeah. That's post-humor. That's what, that's what we're, in addition to reading books and analyzing them, that's what we're really good at here at Book Rats is 
telling the form of a joke with no content in it. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so we had a religious experience, converted Jansenism. The Ponce's were not published in his lifetime. They're sort of collected from his diaries and journals. And as such, there's no standardized numbering system. So uh, we should point out that we're in the, we're using the Penguin edition for our numbers, but that could be wildly different depending on which edition you choose. So a little fun fact for the reader uh, or listener. Yeah. Um, So I guess before we dive in, what was everyone's impressions of Pascal? Is this dude an (laughs) anti-Semitic? He does use Jewish people as an example of why Christianity is better an awful lot. But But he also says that they have to continually exist being wretched in order to show that Christianity is better. Oh, right. So it's not like, it's, yeah, it's not like he hates them. It's not personal. (laughs) It's not personal, yeah. (laughs) It's not like, he seems like the guy, he seems like, you know, like there's never such a bad, there's like, you know, you can never, like, there's never, um, can never be too bad because there's always a bad example, you know, and that's what the Jews are to him. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this, you want to know what a bad example looks like? Look at the Jews. And when I kept reading that, I was like, man, this guy really just hates Jews. Like, and I, I don't know if he likes Jews or if he doesn't. I, I, like I mean, Jews. to be fair, he doesn't like any other religion besides Christianity. And probably specifically Jansenism. And specifically Jansenism. Yeah. Yeah. But besides that, what was y'all's impressions? Um, so I come from a very math heavy background. And so it's the way that he writes, you know, he clearly writes that he's like, he's a mathematician and the way he states his argument and the way that he makes his points. And then he always comes to like some unifying conclusion as to what he was bringing about at the start. So for me, it was pretty easy to follow his train of thought from the beginning. I don't know. I, I enjoyed reading it. I thought it was nice. Yeah. So. I love Pascal. I think it has some really beautiful passages. And I really agree with his basic thesis that man has two natures. He has both yeah. wretchedness and greatness in him. And reconciling those is the quandary. Right. I uh, uh, I think it's fair to say I'm the only non-religious person at the at the table. Is that fair to say? Yes. Sure. Is that is that true? That is correct. And didn't grow up in any <laughs> religious. So, this, reading this was interesting for me because obviously it's very rich in detail and and uh, well argued philosophy. But I just didn't really agree with large swaths of it. Like I, I resisted it uh, uh, a lot more than I expected to, and I hope we'll we'll get into that in the discussion. But I like I recognize that it's clearly. Uh, Seminal and important and and well argued, but uh, you have thoughts. I have thoughts. Yeah, okay. yeah. Did you dislike the parts where he says that atheists and agnostics deserve full? <laughs> the where full he's just rap. totally yeah. he's he's fucking just like, dunking on. He yeah. actually is, is just he he really. I mean, he's he's really good at that. He's like they're not even worth consideration. Like yeah. he like that was honestly kind of funny. Um, it was more the, and I guess we'll get into this a little bit later, but it's like an overview. I I can see why, I can see the appeal of religion in the abstract, like a lot of the ideas he talks about. But Christianity, as with any religion, exists in this particular historical context. And, and 
that's when it sort of kind of falls apart for me. Like, uh, like the arguments he makes as to why Christianity uniquely has these characteristics or is better than this or that religion seem real flat to me. Right. Uh, but we'll, we'll dive into that when we start. Yeah. So give a bit of an overview. Like how we mentioned before, like these are his thoughts that are, um, were collected and, depending on which book or which edition you pick up, uh, because there's also two copies of his uh, Ponce's. There's considered the first copy and then the second one, which is written verbatim, mm. and that's called the second copy. And we don't know which copies to what, but at the end of each one of the Ponce's, you'll have, like, there's, like, a parenthetical number to it, and that's supposed to be for the second, edi- like, the second copy. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's how they are. So that that's how they found them in the second copy. Um, with that said, though, uh, a lot of these thoughts, the way that we're reading them is that we're using a very specific order from Saint John's in Santa Fe. Saint John's College. Saint John's College in Santa Fe, a great books yeah. program, and we used their their assignment numbering. So. It might seem like when you're looking at it, you know, it seems like the numbers are pretty arbitrary. But once you start reading the material, you'll see that there's somewhat of a cohesive thought that's flowing through them right. and how one thing will lead to the next thing will lead to the next. And and it should be noted that there, the numbering is also based off of a sequential ordering based on the great books in Dover and Dutton Modern Library edition. So I imagine that if you were to read those editions, it would follow kind of sequentially and yeah. In any case, it doesn't matter which edition you read. There's a lot of good stuff in here. And uh, to, I guess, kick off the conversation, I have a... Do uh, you have a question? I have a question. So Pascal says that... Let's talk about reason. It seems okay. to be a, a starting point for discussion. Okay. I'm listening. So it seems like Pascal makes a distinction between reason and... And something else, some other faculty of the mind, imagination, he says first principles at one point, faith is, is uh, uh, another example of that. I guess, how does Pascal distinguish reason from other, these other faculties of thought? And are these, you know, first principles or whatever, this non-reason component of the mind, the same in everyone, according to Pascal? So to the first part, uh, I think the things he sets against reason are imagination and sensation, I would guess. And then imagination kind of also including feeling. Mm-hmm. He also includes passion in there somewhere, too. Right. Um, yeah. And one of my favorite quotes from this reading is, um, reason may object in vain, it cannot fix the price of things. And I like mm-hmm. it because it says, to me, that's, that gets that reason can connect one thing to another, but it can't set the initial value of something, right? That's the mm-hmm. first principle you were talking about. So, yeah, to use a, a really contrived math analogy, reason is the proof, but not the axioms. Like, Correct. Yeah. Because he even says in um, at the start of the wager, which we will get into the wager, mm-hmm. that's uh, 418. That says, Ponce, that's 418. Uh, he discusses how, and I'll just quote directly from it, you know, so we can know that 
The infinite exists without knowing its nature, just as we know that it's untrue that numbers are finite. This gets into like what infinity is and how he describes infinity. Right. Thus it is true that there is an infinite number, but we do not know what it is. It is untrue that it is even, untrue that it is odd, for by adding a unit does not change its nature. Yet it is number, and every number is even or odd. Therefore, we may well know that God exists without knowing what he is. So like in reason, you know, and he explains this in the very first Ponce, you know, in five one two, right? You know, like the di- like the difference between mathematical thinking and intuitive thinking is in mathematical thinking you need to prove every single line. You need to have an understanding right. for every single thing that you're doing. For him, when it comes to religion, when it comes to faith, you know, he later says in this uh, Ponce that you just fuck it, go for it. Just say, that's really, I mean, that, right. that's yeah. really yeah. what he yeah. says. Just like, fuck well, he it. he says, reason can't get you there or away from there. Reason has nothing to yeah, do reason with answering that question. Yeah. So give up on reason as far as that goes. I mean, right. he's a mathematician. Yeah, he's, he's a mathematician. Yeah. 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 He's just like, he just sees that, that this is something that kind of transcends reason. That there are certain things that reason can't fully explain. Right. But so, then the the whole wager is sort of an attempt to apply reason to the question, should I believe in God or not, right? Right, yeah. He's trying to show reasonably why you don't need reason to prove it. Well, he's trying... To or, sh- I think he's trying to show that if you apply reason to the question, should I believe in God, then admitting that there are many things you don't know, it's it makes more sense for you to believe in God because the... Uh, the risk of being wrong is so much greater than the opposite. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is, into, this is just a, a parenthetical, but Pascal was one of the first people to write about probability theory. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's some some prior interest there. Hence why this is called the wager. It's probably, it's yeah. probably based on that, too, for a little bit more yeah. context. And, and people have probably heard of Pascal's wager. I guess we can lay out, like, clear, like what exactly what it is, is that... Uh, you can never know whether God exists or not. He like lays out what, right. what, like three possibilities that you know God exists, God doesn't exist, or a devil created the world or something. Um, yeah, good God exists. Bad bad God <laughs> exists. Or nothing. <laughs> or nothing. And you can never know. He says that that's impossible. Never know through reason. Yeah. Never know through reason that this is true. And thus, you have to make su- you have to make a bet. Basically, you have to. You, since you can never know with that kind of certainty, the only way we can talk about these kinds of things is in the realm of, like, probability and, and uncertainty. Well, and the reason it matters is because what is at stake is eternal life. You know, mm-hmm. and one of these three options, right, yeah. you have, if there is a good God, according to Pascal, you have the option to achieve eternal life or <laughs> eternal punishment. Right, yeah. <laughs> so the stakes are high. In yeah. one of these three options, as high as they could possibly be. Right. right. Yeah. If if you if there is no God, then it doesn't matter. Right. But we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. But we don't know. Which is interesting because uh, is it true that it wouldn't matter if there was no like the idea that uh, how you live your life uh, and what you spend your life doing, even if there's no God, that it doesn't matter. Like like that particular connective argument was a little, I don't know, seemed a little presumptive to me. Did he say that, that your life wouldn't matter? No, but the idea is that 
you should specifically follow this like Christian ethos because there's no downside to not following it if God doesn't exist. But what if what if there was? Like it it seems like that the assumption is that value of that sort can't exist absent a God, right? Like what if it was I don't think he says that. I think he says there's you should believe because the risk is eternal life or eternal punishment. But I don't right. think he really addresses whether or not I always take following it as like, this belief system without a God would do you harm or Yeah, because he, he says that it's like, you know, like, what do you have left to lose if, you know, like, if there is a God, you know, or if there, like, if there is a God, if the choice is if there is a God, if there isn't a God, what do you have to lose by saying there is a God? Right. Know, as opposed to not saying that there is a God. You don't lose anything. Well, well I mean, Alex is... That's, suggestion is that maybe you do if you follow this very specific way of living right which is kind of ascetic no and, and self-denying and is it I well mean, i mean does he think it is well it compare in comparison to i don't know the secular life as it were right isn't i mean christianity i mean there's different types of christianity i don't i'm not an expert on this so well the only reason i Press it is because he's a 16th, a 17th century Jansenist, <laughs> and right. we're a Catholic and a Protestant in the 21st century. Those of us who are religious at the table, so I'm not right. sure we know exactly what sort of life he thinks it means to be a Christian. Right? right. It's just, yeah. It's separated by so many centuries. It, so we can't assume anything about like what it means beyond belief. Yeah, belief is yeah, obviously actually, a core component. He doesn't but, talk much about the actions yeah. he would take as a Christian, does he? he or no. like what the, the, the life only thing, would be like. And the only thing that he does, he just strictly uh, mentions scripture and that's it. Yeah. He doesn't really talk about any sort of what rituals, like what your day would be like. So the only, so it, it's, it's weird. This almost sounds like a very Protestant kind of argument of like, belief is the only thing that matters. Well, belief is the paramount of paramount importance because if 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 other things mattered in terms of living a Christian life, why does he not really discuss it? I mean, it's true I made that assumption unfairly, but well, I mean, he's talking about the entry point. Do you believe or not? Does reason, you know, what directs your choices? Is it reason? Is it imagination? Is right. it something else? I mean, yeah, it's true. He doesn't talk about what it would mean to be a Christian in the day-to-day. But I'm not sure we can extrapolate that that means he doesn't care. Other things are... Care about what you do as a Christian or have thoughts about it. But he he doesn't discuss it in the book that much. I no, didn't see it. I didn't no. see it. Yeah, I didn't no. see it either. So, I do have a question. He does talk an awful lot about man's dual nature as both wretched and great and has you know, lays out that that le- should lead us to the decision to become Christians, but he doesn't say anything about how being a Christian reconciles those two or allows right. this or harmony. And what happens? You still just have this uncomfortable dual nature? I think it's just that, you know, and he even says it, and that's more towards the end of the readings too. 3.11 or something like that? I hate that band. It's not 3.11. It's talking about maybe 446 or something like that, how, you know, that that we're able to, rec- like how you said, we're able to recognize our greatness because 
449. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, it is then, it's like four or five paragraphs down. Um, it is then perfectly possible to know God, but not, not, but not our own wretchedness, our own wretchedness, but not God. But it is not possible to know Christ without knowing both God and our wretchedness alike. So he sees Pascal as saying, you can, that Christ is a thing that saves us from our own wretchedness. Yes, and more specifically, human nature has this quandary in that it is dual. Mm-hmm. And that's hard mm-hmm. to explain, and in his opinion, no other religion explains it. It's, it's a contradiction. Not. He even says that it's a contradiction. Yeah, it's a contradiction in some ways. And spe- what he thinks is specific to Christianity is that you have a God figure who also participated in the wretchedness of the human condition, was made flesh, right? Right, the, the, so, the intercessor in the right. form of Jesus. Yeah, right. who, had, who could only intercede because he partook of a human life. Mm-hmm. Right, because right. he knew both natures. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Did you find the thing, the idea that man has two natures persuasive? Of like reason and not reason. I thought it was wretchedness and goodness. Right. Well, there's there's several versions of that. There's yeah, he, there's a duality running through all of it. I mean, yeah. he he uses the in the the pat the section on the wager. He talks about infinity and like infinitesimals. Like there's infinitely small and infinitely large and man is caught between those two things like humanity is just constantly a mediocre middle between various states and that our uh our suffering comes from wanting certainty wanting solid ground but never being able to find it in within those terms knowing enough to imagine (laughs) or to know a small piece of what is good but Right. Yeah. Being able to yeah. Fully. Like there's one where he's talking about how happiness is something we're all seeking, but always eluding us no matter what our station is in life. Um, th- th- that is a compelling, compelling world. Uh, but it, this is interesting. I, 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 I don't often think about being like secular or atheist or whatever, but this particular work forced me to think about it more like it like as they say atheism is the absence of a particular belief but pascal is so clearly starting from it as a first principle Mm -hmm. that like it it really throws into to to relief the difference in in outlook well he does that through a form of mysticism you know he's saying that there's that you can't find that there's no that you can't reason your way into it or you can't reason your way out of it you're continuously Mm -hmm. What's that? Like the snake that's eating its own tail? Was, Ouroboros? Yeah, it's like an Ouroboros. Like it's just cons- like, it's a never-ending cycle. It's never going to stop. So you're just going to be constantly flummoxed in that state. If you're trying to prove if it. If you're trying yeah. to prove it. Yeah. Which you'll never be able to do. You know, and then... Right. Um, when I was reading some of these passages, it was really easy for me to see it as the incompleteness theorems. Right, yeah. You know. Oh, you're... Fi- okay. Yeah. So... It's on the program. Really? Yeah. Google's on the program? Indeed. Oh my God, we're doing that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I saw it as the incompleteness theorems. Right. Where there's just some things we're just never going to be able to prove. And there are some things that you can't prove within its own closed system. Right. And yeah, he views reason as a closed and system. And he sees reason as a closed system. And he thinks that our, our dual nature, these contradictory things in which we participate, is a good example of how reason isn't sufficient because right. man has tried to reconcile those two and live a happy life and can't. 
to play devil's advocate, I don't actually believe this argument, but, uh, you know, in, in 418, where he talks about infinite numbers, uh, it's true that there is an infinite number, but we do not know what it is. It isn't true that it is even, untrue that it is odd. Um, uh, and basically the, that there exists knowledge without, that we can know things without being able to reason about them or really describe that knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what about the argument that, that, that line of thinking is sort of a failure on Pascal's part of a, not a lack of reason per se, but of a deficiency in our current mode of reason. As an example, as an example, um, he's talking about infinite numbers being unknowable, but as we know in the 19th century, infinities became sort of the substance of the very basis of math and became something that you could manipulate or talk about in a very concrete form. So reason obviously, you know, sort of invalidated that metaphor after the fact. Now, it's, I think... it is infinity odd or even? That infinity is infinity. Infinity is infinity. It's a separate category. Right. But, I mean, so all numbers are odd or even. We still agree with that one, right? I mean, it's, it, well, is it a number? It's not really a number. But it's still something that can be described and, and dealt with as a quantity. Um, but, I, I mean, it seems like that paradox I mean, still stands. We've gotten maybe more comfortable with handling it and packaging it up in a way that we can deal with it mathematically, but like you can still, is still true, yeah, right? You can still, there's, like, there's you, can, you can imagine something like, you, you know, like you can like think about like any number, like think about the largest number that you can, right? And it's yeah. running across your head like this, like this, like this. And if you get that and you add it to the infinity sign, you know, that infinity sign is still going to be there. It doesn't matter yes. yeah. because well, that it's not a massive number, number plus infinity is like, because you're, you're right, it's not a number. Right. But it's just, it's, it's the concept. So like we can talk about that we can... infinite cardinalities of a set, like it's a quantity that we can use, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess this is getting sidetracked into... Yeah, we're into talking the but, the, but the point was that, how does Pascal know that reason won't solve these things, right? How is this, it sounds very appealing, and I agree with the, the charge of it, that like reason alone is not enough. But do you think that he proves that? And see, this is part of the problem, is that you would have to use reason to prove that reason is insufficient. I mean, I think logical paradoxes are a good uh, a good indication of logic's limits. In right. Terms, right. Where, you know, you have two first principles, and at some point, they clash with one another. Right. I think that works. But then another question I have is that, okay, so if you think reason will eventually solve this problem... How does that do you any good? It could be 400 years from now. And you're doing right. it through right. like... you have to live your life now. Yeah, right? and you're doing and it through... So you're going to substitute a faith that reason will get there eventually as as a reason to not have faith in the of the religious kind, right? Right. Well, th- well, then we're getting into a discussion of different types of faith, right? And, I mean, Pascal seems to assume kind of kind of a binary here. Either you believe in a god or you don't, but... I mean, even with it, and and I'm I'm assuming that from that starting point, he then shows, or or the the point in the, the organization of his thought is that you you come to that conclusion, and then he shows why Christianity is the most superior version of that type of faith, right? Is that that would we agree with that? That seems, that true. seems fair. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but what if there are different types of faith? What if that's not a, a fair assumption? I mean, Hinduism, for instance, is polytheistic. There isn't one one god, uh, and, and he, he mentions it. He's aware of Hinduism to, to some extent. So is there one type of faith or like a faith that reason or scientific progress or this or whatever technology will solve all of these problems and paradoxes eventually? That is a type of faith. Is that the, it's clearly a different type of faith. I'm not sure it is a different type of faith. I think so it's just... So if I'm Pascal in the 16th century and I have these, I am aware of these logical paradoxes about infinity. I am also one of the best minds of my generation and I cannot solve them. Right. What would it mean for him to think, oh, in 400 years, they will have solved this or have a different way of, I mean, what would that faith be based on? Well, that, well, that, that and also, be? you know, if we're just going to use, if we're just going to use, like, loosely translate that for, for this example, that reason is the same as logic, you Which, know, yeah, right. not a given, right. but, not, not a given, but like, yeah. like, let's just say for the, for this purpose, but, you know, the only way you can solve a logic problem is through brute force. You can't, you know, like through brute force using a couple of set of axiomatic truths that you have. If you say that it's going to take you 400 years to solve it, you know, that's usually, even if it's inductive, that's still usually a lot of trial but, and error that's going through it. But reason is not static either. I mean, we're being kind of math heavy here, but... Math has undergone so many like fundamental changes in the base assumptions of how numbers work. It seems honestly like you're using just a different language to talk about infinity that has evolved since Pascal was talking about infinity. I'm not just talking about infinity though. I'm saying that like imaginary numbers, negative right. numbers, all these things have, have changed. Things that were thought to be paradoxes then became no, no longer were paradoxes, right? Like, the Greeks thought the square root of two was like an abomination and wanted to perish, banish it from all of geometry. But now we deal with it as freely as we do any other real number. And, and I don't know, like, I don't personally believe in this argument, but I don't think that it's one. I think that it is something that other people believe in. There's a lot of people that have a kind of blind faith in reason and technology to resolve problems in the future. And do you think that's bad? I mean, I hate all the people that <laughs> like, I, I dislike the people that have that kind of mentality, but I, I don't know if does Pascal really conclusively defeat that argument or is it like another, another type of faith? Right. Well, I mean, he does, say you know that you know like that's all faith is that you know you have you have that choice that's all, that's all that faith really is at the end of the day is that you choose to whether you want to believe in this or if you do not want to believe in this right. and yeah. you know from personal experience it's like you choose like i choose whether or not i want to go through this through reason alone or if mm -hmm. i'm just going to say there's something mystical that's out there that I'm never going to be able to understand. Right. Might as well just lean into it and trust it. Yeah. Well, Fuck what about, it. See. What about the issue of morality and values? Because that's also a part of his argument that yes, you can reason about all these things, but that can't tell you what to value. That can't set the price of things. Right. Right. I mean, that 
you know, even if I waited 400 years to get the solution to this paradox, which I'm unconvinced that solves the paradox, I feel like that just redefines the term and lets us manipulate it better. Um, even if I think that in 400 years, we're going to get some way to handle this mathematical problem that tells me nothing about morality or how to live my life or... Well, doesn't he also, questions. I mean, doesn't he say, and I'm probably, I'm probably saying this wrong. I'm probably not answering the question when I say this, but doesn't he say, you know, that morality comes from true goodness, right? And since at our very nature, you know, we're, like man is wretched, like we are just complete abominations. Well, half and half. Well, half and half, yeah, we're right? half and half, yeah, yeah half and half. <laughs> but we only achieve that goodness once we through once we go. We're no longer we recognize our own wretchedness when we have you know this archetypical figure in Christ who did no wrong. Right. So that could be that's how that's how I think he was using his basis of morality. It was oh, like, definitely. I agree. I that's think, where yeah, that's where, from. yeah, that's, that's where I think I'm getting lost in what you're asking. I was asking, even if you think you can, that reason will be able to solve more problems of a mathematical nature in the future. That still doesn't ex answer the problem of reason being limited when it comes to moral problems or value problems. Right. And, and it certainly is, but wouldn't the argument just be that like morality doesn't exist we can't prove it exists or like like there is a sort of um, like techno nihilist perspective that can only be dealt with with reason in, in this weird way right like it's, how do you reason someone out of thinking that there's no such thing as morality uh yeah how do you make how do you make like, a I, moral thing out of how can you say like through reason this thing right here is moral? Well, and he, you know, the funny, he never really addresses that. I, I, or did he address it? I think that's what he means by reason cannot fix the price of things. Right. Well, I mean, regardless of morality, the argument is whether it's true or not, right? Like Whether what is true? Whether a fa the faith that reason will eventually solve all problems or could eventually mm -hmm. solve all problems is is i mean it could be a worse world you know absent this faith in in something else in a god or or some sense of moral good it could be a worse world for all of us but it would still not be the true world well, again wait, i'm just wait, being, what would not be the true world a world where reason is fallible right is I, that okay. the world we live in well that's what i'm i'm saying that if we're distinguishing between different types of faith, faith that reason, reason is only fallible because we don't know how to use it correctly, right? Like it could theoretically solve all of these different problems and paradoxes and could answer all the mysteries of the universe. We're just not there yet for whatever reason. And that's, that's a sort of system of faith that I think a lot of people have and it like influences them in their day-to-day -day lives, right? But you said, so if science could solve, science or reason, let's say, could solve mathematical problems and astronomical problems and all that sort of stuff that that still doesn't tell me how to interact with my neighbor well right if, yeah but what i mean the way that we're like what was the thing that you said about read like reason is like doesn't have a fixed price on things reason cannot set the price of things reason cannot set the price of things what if we're we're assuming that reason is a static thing 
that once you know something, it stays that way. What if he know? What if Pascal knew that reason, you know, just as humans are, reason will always change and evolve. So, what could have been moral back then is not no longer moral now because our reasoning, as things have changed, uh, our reasoning has changed from back when Pascal was there, mm-hmm. when a lot back back when Pascal was alive to now what if that's the thing that we're trying to set a definitive static moral code through reason but we can't do that since we can't ever we can't say that reason is a static thing if reason is like if reason is like if reason is like this page right here like this is this contains all reasoning right then what if right we can't well for for just for an example of that in 110 he talks about how he's talking about the knowledge of first principles. And he says for knowledge of first principles, like space, time, motion, number is as solid as any derived through reason. And it is on such knowledge coming from the heart instinct that reason has to depend and base all of its arguments. Well, another example, all of our understandings of space, time and motion have been thrown up in the air and jumbled several times. Right. Uh, what we assumed was a first principle, like Newtonian style physics is not how the world actually works. Uh, so th- this is the sort of, again, this, I'm playing devil's advocate. I don't believe in this nihilistic, hyper-rationalist world where I think it's true that there is no, there is no guidance of how to interact with people in a, in a moral framework, but in terms of answering the wager, like in that very narrow sense, I think that they will just say that any, any fallibility in our own reason is a fallibility of humans, not a fallibility of reason. Where does reason exist except in humans? Well, they would just say that the world, that there is static, objective truth, truth that can be accessed. Uh, we just don't know how to access all of it yet. And that that's sort of the, the metaphysical vision of a lot of these, a lot of these atheists, right? A lot of these militant atheists. That's that's their thoughts. so that's their argument, right? Yeah, this that's is kind their of, argument. This is the someone. Who, this is the response to the atheist response to the wager, I guess. Well, okay, I didn't know that Pascal implied that you could use reason to answer the wager because you can't prove that God doesn't exist. And you're right. So earlier you were talking about we can use reason maybe to answer some of these other questions, but one of those questions wasn't whether or not God exists. And the wager is about, does God exist? Does God exist or not? Right. Right. Well, are we we talking about morality and we're saying how morality, because the way that I was seeing is that morality was derived from God. Yes. Yeah. That's Pascal is definitely. Yeah. So that's, and then we're trying to figure out, well, can you derive morality from reason in that case? And I think that's kind of where we're at. And what you were saying from your example is that, from the not from the real nihilistic atheists that we just haven't gotten there yet. We don't know what true morality is because we haven't we haven't logicked our way. We well, haven't reasoned our way to that. I, I think that yet. maybe they don't even. There's not really even an ethical framework there because at least we as following from Pascal's logic that more morality in our way of interacting with people is derived from God the the hyper rationalist faith does not necessarily follow that same path, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing what you're saying in that maybe I'm just 
maybe I'm just redefining things not actually this argument doesn't actually answer the wager in that it's it's pausing this alternative faith but Pascal's sort of waiting is that you know like there's a bunch of different possibilities but the possibility that God exists has the highest stakes right he also says I think this is actually the crux of his argument that if you have faith that reason will get you the answers eventually you are having a type of faith right and so that is no different than having a faith in God so why wouldn't you have a faith in goodness you know, why would you choose right. like, 400 years from now, we're going to solve this math problem versus that's the same type of same leap of faith as to say there is a good God who exists and has a plan and cares for us and like all these wonderful things. Right. Right. Why on earth would you choose the former over the latter if they're the same type of faith? Well, that's and that's kind of like and that's why like he like he even says explicitly. So why not just go for it? You know, like just just go for it. Like just believe. You know, like, it's easy, like, he even says, you know, like, if you have all of these things that you can gain from it, and you have this, if you, like, it's just like a, it's a completely, like, the right. scale is, like, completely skewed one way as opposed <laughs> to another. So you can win all these things, and maybe this much, yeah. if you do not believe, so fuck it, just do it. Like, you have nothing to lose in that case. I think it's the same, yeah, I've already said this, but I, I think it's the same faith to say, you know, in four or five hundred years, we're going to have solved X, oh, yeah. Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And particularly for someone like Pascal, who was one of the smartest minds alive at oh, that yeah. time. He, was, he, was... he looked at all the problems and he said, I can't, I can't get there. <laughs> right, yeah. And can you imagine being in the 16th century and conceiving of where science and technology and math would go? No. Right. He had no way to know that. It would have been a same, similar amount of faith. Right. So the, the argument is that... Uh, is basically weighing the 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 material not the material but the like spiritual impacts of these two types of faith. Let's say the the hyper rationalist, there is no God. The two different things to have faith in. I think it's the same type of faith. Same type of faith, different ends of the faith. Let's say yes. And the idea is that you weigh for a faith in in a God of any kind, right? It's sort of generic in, in his framing of it um you have this possibility for eternal life the, the downside he says are sort of non-existent right yes yeah, he does. which is an assumption right uh i mean there's certainly a, a spotty history i mean this was again i'm i'm playing the, the the atheist here the devil's advocate but there is a pretty spotty his moral history of the church of christianity oh for sure but he's talking about the individual choice. The right? individual choice. Yeah, like, I agree. At a societal level, it is super unclear Christianity has done any good historically, right? Right. But this is the strictly individual on, choice. Strictly right? on an individual level, right? Right. Like this, I mean, and that's what he says. This is your fate. Just on like an internal level, like let's. So it, it almost like it doesn't even extend outside of your own internal dialogue. Like and are you seeing that? Well, yeah, like that idea of faith. Are you seeing that as like a true thing? Is that like a form, yeah. like the ultimate truth? Is knowing that God exists or not? Go on. I mean, because he even says it, like you know, like if he he even says it, like he's really he's very much aware of like the skeptics' view yes, of things. Yes. Yeah. So he even says it in four oh six, you know, we have an idea of truth which no amount of skepticism can overcome. 
So no matter how much you believe in God, you're always going to have that one person who's going to try to use reason. Or you always who's going to try to use reason to yeah. prove that God doesn't exist. Oh, okay. I read that passage very differently. Okay. So the, I think the truth he's referring to is that there is a God. And even as skeptical as we want to be, even a skeptic has a concept of an objective truth. Alex mentioned it earlier when right. he was trying to be the devil's advocate. I don't understand the concept of an objective truth without some sort of metaphysical framework like a god. Right. right. You could say there are, I guess, physical things out in the universe, but truth is always putting physical things into language. Like It's mm-hmm. not a reflection of what is, it's right. something else. And to say there's an objective truth, I think he's talking about god there. Yes, that's and that's what I was. Yeah. So even skeptics, when even when they're trying to say, "Oh, there is a truth out there," they don't realize it, but they're they're talking about they're talking about God because mm-hmm. Pascal would say God is real, et cetera. But even the desire or the knowledge that there might be a truth out there, I think he would say, is the half of our nature that is great and no and is divine. Right. And do you think that's like for them, like for those skeptics, like the truth is out there? That's their, do, do you think they mean that as an offhand, like, yeah, the truth is out there. Do they mean that as a true statement? Like, do, do they, are they saying that half-heartedly or are they saying, or are they earnestly trying to seek out goodness whenever they're I think they're it? earnestly trying to seek it out in the way in which they conceptualize right. it. Right. So, so, not to belabor this wager thing even more, uh, because I, I do have another, like, question but just to, to so that we're all on the same page, the wager, the type of faith he's talking about, faith in the God, whatever. I mean, Pascal would say, you know, it is a, a God, but it's, but the argument that he's making is sort of general, as you say, like even the skeptics are their, their idea, their framework for understanding the world is premised on something godlike, right? Yeah. On why faith. would you care about truth? Right. At all. So there is, so... That's like step one is getting to that point is admitting that you have this kind of faith in, in, in a God or something. How does Pascal differentiate, let's say, types of faiths in other types of gods or other religions with Christianity? Because he is very clear that Christianity is the one true religion, right? Right. And he is operating from catholic french in france in the 16th century and probably doesn't have a whole lot of exposure to other religions other than he's heard of it in passing a couple yeah of times. he's heard of islam there's and yeah hipsters that Jews. love islam and that's and... so he's not a, like a doctor of comparative religion oh yeah that of is course not true. yeah he, he, some of these places are so distant and far off like so never... what is the question you're asking well there's there there are clearly passages where pascal is describing like what makes christianity christianity unique and they're like unique and therefore true so it's like what are those characteristics what are like like obviously he's going to have this very like provincial like catholicism is the only true religion but like what are the characteristics if we could take them out and abstract them what are they like what makes the true religion true well Well, he's okay that's a different question i think from how we could know that this religion is more true than the others. Right. And what he says is that other religions do not address the fact that man has this dual nature, so they they don't admit it, or if they do, they don't provide a solution. And this solution being a Christ figure 
who by combining the two, not just forcing us to, you know, reject one half of our nature and try to force it away, but by like somehow some miracle. They intermingle you know, enough. Yeah. God made flesh is the inherent mi- uh, miracle that allows yeah. us to, to integrate those two. I to integrate, that... like you can use them to you or they, they work uh, pretty much in synchrony where you have through Christ, man can live in greatness while also recognizing his own wretchedness at the same time. Like he recognizes his own wretchedness and he lives his life in the truest form and the most good form. Kind of. I mean, this has been my question all along. What happens after you convert? Do you still have those dual natures? And so you still have to live I you think know, you, I mean, you, I mean, you, I mean, you think, I mean, I think it. like, you know, wretchedness, you know, like it depends on everybody has those wretched, like those internal civil war struggles every day, you know, like, right. you know, like, do I really want to eat that burger or do I just want to eat healthy for one more day? You know, should, do I, we should actually define what he means by wretched because it seems to cover a lot of territory, right? Yeah. Like the, the, that one. Where he he talks about the man is the most wretched creature or whatever. Yeah. So Which one was that? What do we think he means by wretched? Stephen, your example of eating the burger was sinfulness, basically, right? Yeah, I know I sin- should do better and I don't. I know I should do better and I don't. So that's that's like in terms of the dual nature. Yeah. That's I think where... there's some of that, but I thought wretchedness more meant pain and despair and how humans feel that differently than animals. You know, animals don't feel despair. They can feel pain or maybe even anxiety or something like that, but they don't feel despair. So, right. like, our and our ability to do that is based on, I don't know what, but I think some inherent idea we have of the ideal, which right. would be somewhat divine. Yeah. Right? What did you think you meant by wretched? By wretched. I actually didn't focus that much on those. Those passages weren't the ones that... I mean, it seemed to... I seem to get from that that there was that it was specifically the in between state that made man wretched in a way like the fact that yeah. that almost like in Pascal's view the ideal would be you wouldn't have to use reason to prove anything because you knew everything as first principle. So even doubt is part of our wretchedness. Yeah, doubt is part of yeah. our wretchedness. Where like like a true godlike figure would wouldn't need reason because all truths are sort of imminent to them at, at once. Right. Reason is our faulty, you know, with our faulty brains, our way of trying to get closer to truth. Yeah, I think these, I think wretchedness covers all of these. Like, the idea that we sin, but no, we shouldn't. The idea that we know enough to know that we don't know much. Right, And then also our, the pain and despair we feel at knowing that the world is not as it should be. It's all of those. So the Ponce that talks about wretchedness, or one of them, is um, one fourteen. Man's greatness comes from knowing he is wretched. A tree does not know it is wretched. Thus, it is wretched to know that one is wretched, but there is greatness in knowing one is wretched. So knowing that at all times, you know, you have this, you have this evil that's inside of you, and you know that you're capable of doing this, you know, horrible thing. Yet you don't do it. That's what makes you great. Is is knowing is that you have this, 
like you know that what you have right here that you have the ability you could get that cup right there and you could just like throw it across my head yeah. you know but you just like you have that thought but you're not acting on it you Does realize that, make me great? that seems like such a it's, it's, a low bar right well i mean it's not i mean i don't feel great sitting here not throwing a cup at you like well i mean that's a well that's a so i mean what about being like you know you want to be lazy but you know you got to get shit done you know, that's well, not... Uh, okay, now like, we got to define what he means by greatness. Well, in, in, in 117, he says man's greatness. Uh, man's greatness is so obvious that it can even be deduced from his wretchedness. Thank you. <laughs> so there we go. Um, uh, he says that he must have fallen from some better state, uh, which was once his own. Like, we, we once were all great, and now we've fallen, and we're in a semi-wretched state. So when I read him talking about greatness i assumed that meant the fact that humans can participate in art and fall in love and do all of these amazing things that you know and have curiosity and have the joy of discovery yeah he doesn't really say that he does talk about charity it's unclear if that's what he means by greatness or if that's just morality and God. He also is, says that charity is the only true Christian thing. He attributes that to yeah. one of the main things. That, yeah. This is partly why I felt like he was such an ascetic just reading through it is because it's like there's so little talk about like what it means to be a Christian in day-to-day life. Like, But he also takes, I think, such joy in using his brain. I didn't think that was yeah. very ascetic. Like, that's very yeah, human. He, does, like, he, he, he indulges say, his curiosity. And... Uh, it's, what is it? Our dignity consists in thought. I yeah. thought that was a good line. I found a thing yeah. resolving that can help resolve uh, greatness versus wretchedness. Yes. Which one? Uh, it's 122. And I'll just... It's one paragraph, so I'll just read it because it's it answers pretty much all of our questions. Since wretchedness and greatness can be concluded from each other, some people have been more inclined to conclude that man is wretched for having his greatness prove it, while others are more cogently concluded that he is great by basing the proof on wretchedness. Everything that could be said by one side as proof of greatness has only served as an argument for the others to conclude that he is wretched, since the further one falls the more wretched one is, and vice versa. One has followed the other in an endless circle, for it is certain that as man's insight increases, so he finds both wretchedness and greatness within himself. In a word, man knows he is wretched. Thus, he is wretched because he is so, but he is truly great because he knows it. So, that kind of answers that point a bit. So we're great because we have an inherent sense of the ideal i think no i think you know i think you become great once you know that you are truly not great but you have to have an inherent idea of what's great to know you're in not order great. to do that yeah you know, right if you know you're wretched you're comparing yourself to some other state that you could be or should be right, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. you must have an inherent sense of what's the good ideal yeah. or the good or divine right. or something yeah yeah, that's what that clarifies it. Because otherwise it seemed real. Yeah, well, because, well, yeah and, and he even says, like, yeah, this is circular. This, like, you can't have one without having the other. You know? I think that also helps clarify the statement about even skeptics seek truth or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. They seek truth because they have some idea that there is an objective. It's a form of ideal. Like, why would you care about the truth? 
Right. So even in that, there's a little grain of yeah. what he defines as greatness. Okay, so help me resolve this oh, gnawing existential problem. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna have a lot of those on this yeah. podcast. Like that. Like this whole podcast is just gonna be like one massive existential yeah. anxiety crisis. <laughs> yeah. So if you guys see us, like if we're ever on tour and if we're just like completely loaded up on Prozac, just know that we have already like we're we have built an immunity to all other <laughs> antidepressants and so we are just on to the next Look, i'm living my best life <laughs> um uh so so anyway uh that stuff earlier about the like hyper rationalist that very horrible worldview i don't have that obviously i would <laughs> i really thought you would be like guys that's me <laughs> i gotta confess <laughs> No, I, do, I don't. I don't have faith. I have a friend. <laughs> yeah, let's just say my friend. My friend. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's not you. That's not me. You plan. That's. Uh, but I am an atheist, and this is this is why. This is the the disjunction here. His description of sort of like let's say the qualities of Christianity. There is a hidden God. There is an intercessor of man, or whatever. In the abstract, and and the way in which he derives a sort of moral framework for relating with other people. In the abstract, I totally see the appeal of that. And I even see like, oh, I can understand having that kind of faith. But uh, Pascal is not like a deist. He's not like God in the abstract. This specific God. Yeah. If there's a difference between believing in religion generally or like spirituality versus being a member of a religion. Like religion specifically... In a, in a particular context. And that's the jump that's, that's incredibly difficult for me. From, and I'm from thinking in the abstract that like, maybe there is a God, maybe that, you know, like these sort of general propositions, general propositions. Reason oh, is limited, you know, as maybe we do need an external source of morality, etc. That right. doesn't tell me anything about why this God. Right. Yeah. Why, why the, the Jew that spoke Aramaic and like did all the stuff in Judea in, this particular historical time, like that, that kind of jump is very difficult. And it seems like Pascal's approach argumentatively is to find, is to mine out those characteristics of Christianity that are very appealing in the abstract and to try to show that, that like the, if there is a true religion, it must have these qualities. Christianity has these qualities. Ergo, it must be the true religion. That's the impression I got. I, so it's all debatable where he actually started because, like, oh, what a coincidence you end up basically the religion that you grew up in. Like, yeah, yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Stephen and I are both guilty was, of that. Yeah, yes. If he was Buddhist, yes. that would be super rad. Yeah, like, if you're Buddhist in 16th century France, it's like, oh, you were, like, really... You must have <laughs> or found. you're a fucking hipster. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, you're a hipster. Um, you're Schopenhauer. So, you know, we can argue about where, where he actually started, but I think his argument starts with the central question of explaining man's nature. Right. He thinks that's the central question. Mm -hmm. Like he looks around his life and he cannot reconcile, you know, we have animals and animals are off living their animal life. And then we right. have humans and they seem to be complete shit bags. Yeah. They, but also the best. And also both. the, yeah, they're both. <laughs> the freaking best baby, New York city. But he thinks that's <laughs> the central question. And, uh, is that the central question? I think there's a lot of questions in there. That is certainly I an think, important well, but question. No, I think that's... I think, but... So it's easy to see, like... I get where you're coming from, like, in the sense that 
how do you make that leap? Because it's not it's not enough to just be like, yeah, I kind of believe that uh, God is out there and like generally that one should or like even in the existence of souls, like, yeah, souls, maybe souls exist. But like believing it, that's very different than believing in a religion, like part of believing in a religion. There's all this other like stuff that comes with it. You're accepting all these ways of organizing your life and there's a lot of dogma there's a lot of dogma and there's almost sort of an element of you have to accept the dogma even though it may not make sense or seems irrational and i don't know if pascal goes super deep into that element of christianity i like i don't think he doesn't he doesn't yeah he does not talk about what your daily life should look like he doesn't address i mean even to say christianity is very broad yeah so broad as to be inaccurate right right yeah mostly No, I don't think he does address that, but he does. We do have a clear sense of what he thinks the fundamental problem, the fundamental question is. And it's an interesting one because it's so sense-based, right? It's not based on, you know, the despair I feel in the dark of the night when I'm alone. It's, no, I look around myself and I see humans that run the gamut from wretched to great. What explains that? I think it's... You think that that's the, the central question? I think, I think so. that's, yeah. Do we, have, I think do we that's, think there's another one for him? Well, because, you know, he... I think when he sees somebody that's like that, he sees someone that's just doing amazing, and then he's seeing someone else who's doing amazingly bad. Or the same person. Or the who same person both, right. who does both. It's like, how sometimes. the fuck do you do that? Yeah. How are you getting to both of those places? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know? I think another important question is the one we were discussing earlier of how do you live life when reason is insufficient? Or how do you, like, clearly the, clearly there's something missing there and part of the right. text is sketching out what that is. That is probably another central yeah. question, right? Yeah. Like, to me, that's of... the one that, like, was the real brain worm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is how you... How, how like, there's there's several... Like, almost like I, as an atheist, I can almost be like, oh, Pascal's wager, sure, you would take that bet, but that's just the first step. And there's like, you know, a hundred other steps to get to where Pascal is that I I feel like are, if anything, even greater than... He does name some things that he thinks are unique about Christianity. Right. And you know, it's debatable. None of us... I don't really know any other religions deeply enough to say whether... I mean, there, there, there are themes. Yeah, I really don't. Like there are themes... Uh, I mean, like, the whole thing, an intercessor between God and man, that's not unique to Christianity. But the both natures thing? The dual, I mean, Manichaeism. Dual nature. We're talking about Augustine. But the intercessor having both. I mean, I... I again, I don't know enough, but... It doesn't seem like those themes are like one hundred percent unique. What about uh, Buddhism? The Buddha was sort of an intercessor between the divine and humanity. But well, now we're just speculating about other. Right? Religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we don't know, and and obviously the point isn't here to be like Pascal was a fucking dunce. He didn't know anything about the Baha'i faith. That's the that's the disconnect that I have, and that I think a lot of people have who are otherwise open to the idea of spirituality or faith is, is the particular, right? Is the, is making that jump. He has a couple things that he names as what makes Christianity unique. The, the hidden God, the hidden God, yeah, the, the hidden intercessor God. who the has intercessor. both natures. Um, and he doesn't say it, but I, I, I feel comfortable saying that he probably thought this as a mathematician of this time period, because there was a lot of thought in you know, sort of Western Christianity at this time, that God had to be a, it had to be a single God, 
and monotheism, right. that that was the only logical God. Because right. then you would have gods that were stronger than one another, but then there's some logical inconsistency in that. Right. So those three things, I think he would say, are what makes it unique. But yeah, yeah, we don't, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we don't know what kind of yeah. Why that? And it's like Caroline says, like I'm guilty of you know, like I think that just goes down to like if you grew up in that system, you know, mm-hmm. and then you even see it primarily in Catholics. You grew up in that system in the very first inkling of once like oh i can read a little bit now i'm going to denounce everything that i was taught and then mm. it's like oh are you going to go back like once you go back to it it's like or if you find that you're going back to any form of spirituality it's i think that's just kind of a human nature thing it's like you go back to like a like a freudian kind of things like you go back to like simpler times or whatever you think yeah. that's what it is i don't really like that is pure speculation i have no idea but that's... For me, it was a second, almost a second leap of faith, as big as the first. So there's right. a God, and also, <laughs> he's a Methodist, or whatever. That's That's funny. No, Methodist, that's funny. Okay, well, anyway. Uh, and to me, it was more of the thought that reason is limited, if I stay in this very general world of just spirituality, it doesn't give my day-to-day actions any focus. Like I felt that I needed something to sharpen both my understanding against, which is a specific dogma, but then also to tell me what to do and how to act more specifically than just like, Oh, be good. Like that doesn't to me, but I am aware that there were almost two leaps of faith in that decision. And see, I kind of went in the other direction where it's like, I can see the valid the validity of faith one way or the other in the existence of a god or souls in abstract, but I I couldn't make that like that second one I can't I don't believe in it and so it was as you said just sort of like this weird in between state so for me it feels more like more profitable to try to find a way to ground or understand morality without reliance on this chain of event, of chain of belief right. Right. Yeah. But relying on reason. We're relying on reason. Yeah. Which we well, not ju- well, not just <laughs> which we all know. <laughs> well, there is a, there is a faith. There is a certain faith involved, right? But it's not a faith in a god. It's a different type of faith, right? I mean, we seem to have disagreed about that. I feel like it's a similar type of faith. I mean, it's it's similar, but or it's not similar, the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just that you're putting it to a future. Thing. Yeah. yeah, like could you believe in souls but not a god? Could you believe that? And like, and from what we have said is that you're saying that sure, we just haven't reasoned our way into that yet. No, I don't have that particular belief. I don't think that there's any way you can reason. For, I don't think that you can reason morality in quite the same way. I think that there is some other sort of faculty or or something that ha- that has to get you there. So I've read. Pascal's Ponce's twice, and the first time I read it, I was an atheist, and now I'm not. Mm. <laughs> so How maybe that? It, it's very interesting. I loved it the first time I read it because the language is beautiful. Oh yeah, His it's very well written. His descriptions of That's... himself compared to infinity. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, right? that that whole passage is great. Yeah. I found the wager unpersuasive, you know, because yeah. you have to you it's... have to accept that eternal life is a real possibility. And the whole thing, if you're not religious, is that you don't think that. I mean, it, it didn't right. yeah. persuade yeah. me. I thought it was sort of hollow logic uh but now that i come back and read it but i was persuaded by man's two states 
mm-hmm. that seemed true. And that's very much how I part, part of how I view the world now. Like Man. you love people and you love what's animal in them. Like, you know, curling up and cuddling with them and sharing tea with them and all that. But you also love what's great in them. And you have to understand that it's both, right? Mm-hmm. The bad, the good, the mediocre, whatever. Right, yeah. Um, and now reading this as someone who converted eventually, uh, I want more answers to what happens with that dual nature once you're a Christian. Do you still have it? Do you still suffer from it? I mean, it never still, goes away, I guess. Yeah. I think, <laughs> like, I don't know. When, I mean, because I've, yeah, mine, my journey back into faith has just fairly, fairly new within like maybe year, two years. It's brand new. When I was reading it, a lot of it made sense, especially the dual nature aspect of it, because it's, you're always, I always saw it as like you, there was, there's that parable of like the one that you feed and everything, you know, you mm-hmm. have this one the wolf, tools, the tools yeah. and everything. Like I always thought it was like, oh, like, you know, you always have that thing inside of you that's bad, you know, and you're always fighting that thing inside of you that's bad. So just for today, I'm going to try to do one thing to try to beat that one bad thing. You know, whether it's cleaning my room, whether it's making my bed, you know, whether it's making sure that the dog goes out for a little bit longer today. Right. You know, it's doing that one thing, you know, in that sense of where I'm beating that bad wolf a little bit. And I saw that when I was reading the Ponce's. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. It's like, you know, like I'll never like I like realizing that I'm capable of doing all of these bad things. And also the good things. And also the good things. I do want to say we each had three different definitions of wretchedness. I think they all comported with what Pascal said, but that's actually that's just fascinating. I'm, yours was doubt, yours was sin, and mine was despair. Right. And know. they're all related, but we all very clearly <laughs> focused on one of them. I mean, that's his own fault for giving his roundabout-ass definition of wretchedness. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they all fit the idea that you have an internalized sense of the ideal that you don't meet, and that yeah. causes sadness, or doubt is one expression of that in the intellectual realm, and then sin is the moral expression. But I think it's very <laughs> revealing which ones we focus on. It's like, oh, well, that says about a lot about who you're talking to, you know. Yeah. The Catholic was like, oh, my sin. Yeah. Like, Am I a good person? Yeah. And I was like, how do I solve this fucking Rubik's yeah. And I was like, I have feelings. <laughs> That was funny. Yeah. Wow, I just like that pretty much sums up who all three of us are. Okay, before we head out, I gotta, I gotta drop the absolute fire, Ponce. The yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah, know what yeah, I'm talking about. You're talking about. All right, all right. One oh seven. One oh seven. The parrot wipes its beak, although it is clean. Fucking, fucking. <laughs> cut, my drop. Cut. Cut.